Welcome to Rebecca Sounds Reveille. This episode really excites me because the guest I have to bring to you shares the same passion that I have. She is so passionate about helping both survivors of trauma and abuse on their healing journey that she exudes with the passion in many areas of what she does. I've got to tell you that her work is an outgrowth from recovery recovery of her own childhood, well, incest and addictions. And often we don't like to talk about that, but really we need to because as many of you know, things that happen are often done behind closed doors and we don't want to address those things. And that's one of the things that allowed me to start this, this show, the radio, the TV show, the things in domestic violence and trauma. I wanted to ensure that I could help change others in the direction that made their lives better and enrich them and empower them with resources. And that's exactly the things that my guest today also does and is going to bring to you. She has worked in mental health for many, many years, since the 70s. And she has earned her master's in social work from Hunter College in New York. Later, she trained at the Gestalt Institute and eventually opened her own private practice. I love this. I absolutely love this. As a licensed clinical social worker, she combines just a number of different therapies because of the knowledge that she gained and experienced in her own practice. She doesn't limit or place limitations on certain modalities that often you see in different practices based on the things that come across out of DSM manuals or other types of things. And maybe she'll share a little bit about that with us today. But it's all about the client's needs because ultimately they're going to vary and she focuses all on that. She believes that, well, there's many roads that really lead to an individual's healing. And she works with these individuals on their own, as couples, and as a total family, both in recovery from drugs, alcohol, food, codependency, sex, and love addiction, as well as people that suffer from post-traumatic disorder. And, well, trauma and abuse. So not only has she got all of these skills behind her, the passion behind her to help change the lives, but she's an author of a book called My House of Lives, and it is a memoir of her own addiction recovery and overcoming childhood incest. I want her to share with you today a little bit about that because there's something special in this journey of her own and in her memoir. Welcome to the show. Lori Golden. Hi. 
Hi, I'm so delighted you're here and that you share the passion with so many people because the things that you do, everything from different types of recovery, drug and alcohol, but codependency, and I think codependency really carries over to a number of different areas in trauma yep. because it just, from enabling behaviors to rescuing behaviors and a number of different things, they almost just they're they go hand in hand yes yeah. they, go, they really do go hand in hand because yes, they co, co yeah. coincide with all of these things coexist yes, yes. they yes. really really do and oftentimes we only think that codependency is in relationships with other people but they're also in the codependent relationship with a drug or a food or whatever and so we don't really think about this, but you have so many years of experience behind you in helping others that you have brought forth your own exposure. You have opened up something that most of us don't share in the journey that we have. And that is our own personal experience. We don't share that with many people. And you've brought out your book, My House of Lives. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came about not only writing your book, but presenting this to the world? It's been quite a journey. Um, yeah. By the way, codependency for me had been survival because I needed to know what room <laughs> everyone in my family, my mother was in, my father was in, I was tuned in to my external world, not my internal world. I was in my room, in my bedroom, listening for sounds downstairs so that I could figure out where I needed to be in the house. So it's interesting that you brought up codependency because it really is a core issue in this. Anyway, aside from that, I, um, I got into Narcotics Anonymous in 1987. Mm. And I was 37 years old. And prior to that, I would have said I come from a really good family. I grew up in Long Island. I lived in a nice home. I, we went skiing every weekend. We went camping. We had a boat. We went boating every weekend. It was such a nice upbringing. In 1987, I reached a bottom in using drugs. And at that point in my life, my main drugs were Valium. Okay. I was just going to ask you your drug of choice. Mm -hmm. And at that point, it was Valium throughout the day and sleeping pills to help me sleep throughout the night. Prior to that, I had experimented a lot and I had done a lot of different kinds of drugs. But the, the main thing by this point in my evolution as an addict was I was addicted to Valium. And I didn't know it. I kept thinking I got it from doctors. Um, doesn't mean I can't possibly be an addict. To me, an addict is someone who shot intravenously heroin because I grew up in a neighborhood where five of the 
people in that neighborhood were shooting heroin. So I watched the, the progression of heroin addiction in these people. And I said, I'm not anything like that. Well, it ends up I am. <laughs> and I got into Narcotics Anonymous. Um, I moved from New York. I did a geographic and I came out to San Diego. And a year later, I hit my bottom. Okay. I want to point out something that you said just a second ago. Because someone said to me something. Now, first thing is oftentimes people don't realize they have a prescription addiction. Yes. They do not want to really go there because it's been prescribed. The next thing is someone told me that they were not using drugs like uh, smoking hash or something to that effect that that really wasn't a drug. Yeah, yeah, it is. Depends it on is. How, it depends on how you're using it. And so I think oftentimes people perceptualize certain types of drugs or a drug addict only when it comes to someone that's injecting. Mm -hmm. And they minimize anything else such as marijuana, hash, whatever the case is, if you're only smoking it or I, there's a lot of minimization mm -hmm. when it comes to addiction. So I just want to throw yeah. that in there. Yes. Um, you know, it just makes me think about some of the things that I've heard, but the point being is we want to bring this th to the attention because we want to help others in this. And so I go ahead and continue Lori, but I did want to throw that in there. Oh, no, no, that's an important, minimization is very big, particularly in young adults and in teens. There's a lot of minimizing. Yes, 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 yes. And there's a lot of overuse of marijuana. There's a lot of overuse of hash. There's a lot of overuse. It's the same as anything. When you use something regularly, you don't realize that you're ending up coping with all you're, you're shutting yourself off you're you're shifting one set of feelings for another so That's, does that make sense okay that is something that is really crucial for us to talk about lori because i don't think a lot of people really understand when they shift like that. And so can you talk about that for a minute? Because yes. I think this creates further problems. This problem doesn't get resolved. Mm -hmm. It's shifted. And now you have two sets of issues to deal with. And I will go further to say I'm also a recovering food addict. And I've been in recovery for that for 30 years. And food did the same exact thing for me, shifting my moods into another kind of mood. And the reason I'm saying this, so if I was lonely, I wouldn't be in touch with my loneliness, but I would feel uncomfortable. And then I would, I just knew I wanted to get rid of whatever it was that was inside me. I okay. didn't even know what it was. I just didn't feel good. So feelings to me were, 
something that I constantly was trying to alter. Okay. And by altering, if, one sec, if I'm lonely and I don't know I'm lonely and I go and I smoke weed. Okay. And every time I have that feeling, I go and I smoke weed. I never, ever bring in my, a real sense of cure for loneliness because I use the pot to ease the loneliness. And this is true for a lot of feelings across the board, especially children growing up in dysfunctional families. You find, I mean, I used food to numb myself, sugar. I mean, that's where I wanted to go. And that's what I wanted to ask you is the real culprit with food addiction, sugar, because of the endorphins. For me, it was. Okay. For other people, it's starch. You know, it can be. Oh. But it all kind of metabolizes as sugar in the body anyway. I get it. I get it now that you say that. Okay. This, now, I get it. I get it. Yeah. I just, when you said that, it just, the bells and whistles went off instantaneously. When you said starch, I said, okay, that's a conversion. Yeah. Exactly. So when you put all of these things together, really is amazing to think about that because even when someone gives up one addiction, they can go to another addiction, such as you give up, like you'll hear people say, well, I gave up smoking and gained 10 pounds because now I'm eating more. Yes. 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 And that happened to me with sugar. I gave up drugs and I couldn't stop eating sugar. That's all I wanted was sugar. (laughs) Okay. This is, this is really interesting. And so to recover from sugar and you mentioned 30 years, I want to talk about that for a minute because I think ultimately that, that is a key player in certain things. If we can look at just something, and I'm not saying this is simple because a lot of people have addictions to food and sometimes uh, an addiction of not food. There's a lot of eating disorders. So I want to talk about that just for a second because it plays out in these other areas. So let's look at the food addiction just for a second, Lori. And You have been in recovery of that for 30 years. How do you stay away from sugar? And I will tell you, I had an interview with somebody a few months back who said, I am a recovering food from a sugar addict. And I went, I had never heard of that before. I was fascinated by it, but I didn't ask. And I want to know, how do you recover from that? And, and not only that, stay away. How do you, I mean. It was, it's not easy to get continuous abstinence from sugar. I, it's the way I eat. I eat three meals a day. Okay. I eat, I eat natural grains. I eat vegetables and fruits and proteins. I don't eat any, I don't eat refined. It's, I stay away from sugar, wheat, and flour. Now, sugar, sugar wheat, and flour. and flour. Got it. Okay. Because the wheat, the sugar, you know, the wheat and the flour end up processing in the body and create sugar cravings. 
the way the body metabolizes it. Now, I don't know the, all the ins and outs of oh, that. Oh, wow. But it does, it does set up a craving. So could I have done this alone? No, I'm in a 12-step program and I have been for years. And part of what this is, is I, I, there was, like I go through periods of time where I could get abstinence from sugar, wheat, and flour, eating the way I was eating. I was not having cravings, but different things would happen in life and in my recovery. And I'd start to go for the sugar again. I would end up in a sugar run, literally. And then I would back off from it again and try to get abstinence from sugar, wheat, and flour. So when you say how, it, in, my idea of it is I am completely powerless over sugar. If I take a bite of sugar, I open up a craving that is addiction. And I it's get it. hard to explain, but it's a craving that I can't, I get restless. I, no matter what I'm concentrating on, my head will be in, what can I eat? I want sugar. I want sugar. It's, it's, and it's an amazing addiction, how powerful sugar is in the body. So as a licensed, okay, so from a clinical perspective, would you say, since based on what you just said, that one of the things to do is to start identifying how you react when you want that craving? Yeah. Yeah. You do start to, you do have to identify how you react. But for me, it was layers of unwrapping, you know, because, I mean, I can remember at 12 years old being in my bedroom being terrified because I was an incest survivor with, at that point, I was very scared of my father and I was trying to focus on homework and I would run down two flights of stairs, get a couple of bites and my head would just be into what can I eat in the refrigerator? That helped me to not be afraid. It's okay. I get it. From being afraid to what can I eat? And I would run down, I'd get some bites of ice cream, I'd run back up so I didn't have to, you know, so I could get out some energy. And the whole process would start again. And so as I was growing up, food, the moment I really obsessed or thought about food, it immediately took away the feeling that I was experiencing the moment I had put food in my mouth, put sugar in my mouth. It, it would immediately take it away. And that's like a learned behavior over time. Okay. So a lot of people have learned to anesthetize their emotions by stuffing themselves with food and binging or not eating. Not eating is, is in similar ways as binging and obesity. Yes. So you learn these behaviors and they're very, to me, the only way that I was able to abstain now from sugar, wheat, and flour is by being a part of a 12-step program that focuses on how powerless I feel when I'm confronted with sugar. If I have a bite of sugar, 
it just starts it so I don't go to the bite. Okay, so here's what I'm thinking. We have listeners who are saying, that's me. Mm -hmm. That's me. And I want to get a handle on this. And I want to get involved with what she has talked about, a 12-step program. But the only ones that I know of are AA and NA, and that's not me. Where do I go? It's Overeaters Anonymous, Food Addicts Anonymous. They have, you know, there's, there's telephone meetings on the websites for Food Addicts Anonymous and Overeaters Anonymous for people who don't have access. Um, you know, I think my number is on, pe people want to call. Excellent, thank I, you. I absolutely will talk with whoever it is that wants to share because part of my recovery is being able to give away this kind of experience to other people to help them in their journey. Yes. So, you know, food recovery is complex. All recovery is complex. And it's not just as simple as giving up the drug, giving up the sugar, giving up the alcohol, giving up the men. It, that's when you start recovery, is when you abstain from these things and then you start to get deeper into yourself. And that's what happened to me in 1987. I gave up the drugs and I started having flashbacks of sexual abuse. So the first thing I wanna say is for anyone who is listening, if you have been apprehensive to talk to somebody and you want to talk confidentially because you're not at a position or haven't been in a position where you feel like you've wanted to admit to something, but mm -hmm. you just kind of want to talk and see where this goes. Lori is there to assist you in your journey to make your life better. So that's the first more, thing. More than happy to do that. The second thing is she's going to share with us now about her memoir. And I think that this is very important because for those of you maybe who haven't felt the urge just yet to make a phone call, you can pick up a book and see if you can identify with anything in this and you'll realize that this is not someone who you can say, you don't understand. Mm -hmm. She understands. So yeah. let's hear a little bit more, Lori. Okay. So in 1987, um, when I announced myself as an addict, I thought this definitely is in conflict with my nice upbringing. <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't match. And I started increasingly getting symptoms of PTSD. Now, I had always had symptoms of PTSD, anxiety, flashbacks, nightmares, but I medicated with sleeping pills. I took Valium so I didn't have to feel the underlying terror that was going on inside of me day to day. So I, when I came off drugs, I was like, I started feeling terror. I started feeling, I couldn't sleep. I started, uh, I didn't know what to do with myself. I had always had trouble reading and I couldn't sit still. I couldn't sit still long enough. 
I was always um, an athlete, so I would swim or I'd bike ride or I'd run or I'd do different activities to try to calm me down so that I could be in my apartment at night. And I noticed I was very functional during the day. I felt like I put on my work clothes, my nice skirts, my nice tops, and I went out. And I, at that time, I was also a therapist, but I was clueless about sexual abuse in myself. I had no memory of it whatsoever. So I had amnesia with my trauma. And what that means is suddenly at 37, this first six months of recovery, I'm having, I'm, I'm in my living room. I'm absolutely paranoid that somebody's going to break in and hurt me. I'm in the shower. I pull my shower curtain across like in the movie Psycho because I think somebody's right outside my bathroom and is going to get me. Uh-huh. And this constant feeling of somebody, something's going to get me. At that point, I didn't understand I was a sexual abuse survivor. I just started with these panicky, uncomfortable feelings at night. And I felt like a little girl. I felt like a scared little girl. And soon I started having memories, flashbacks. Uh, I started seeing myself sitting in the corner um, in the hallway of my home where I grew up, knowing that why am I in the hallway knowing that I'm terrified? And I, I, it's like I saw myself sitting there frozen, like at seven or eight years old, and I couldn't move. And I kept looking at this image. I drew it in my book because at some point I, I got in touch with art. And I ended up trying to make sense of why am I sitting in this corner? And next, then it slowly, progressively started. I had images of being in my bedroom at night and alligators being in under my bed and snakes and butterflies on my wallpaper coming alive. I was like, it was a terrifying experience. And I knew that I got into the hallway so that I could get to my parents' room, thinking that I would have safety. So... That's literally how it started opening up to me. When you started experiencing this, Lori, did you start applying some of like the Freudian things that you had learned, these theories that you had learned? Not so much Freudian because I've never been in that kind of um, therapy before, you know, the Freudian kind of therapy. And I, at that time it was, I was actually in Gestalt therapy. I was just going to say, because Gestalt is huge. I mean, I, I am not a big Freud fan myself, even though I've learned a lot. Um, just because I don't believe everything equates to certain, a certain thing. Uh, but I, I just wondered you know, if there was a certain applied theory that came to mind or if you were just starting to recognize things and that was, and that was kind of it for right at that moment. I think for right at that moment, what I was recognizing is connecting with that little girl, you know, and really 
seeking information. I felt like I needed to hear with this little kid sitting in the corner, getting out of her bedroom. I felt, I kept feeling like I needed to tune into that little girl. Yes. And, and yes. I do a lot of work today with reparenting, you know? Nurturing. That's a word many people are not familiar with, reparenting. It's kind of like seeing myself as a little girl and really bringing in the adult part of me to take care of that little girl. And, you know, you can have visualizations cover a wide range of things. You can sit and close your eyes. I mean, I would hold a pillow and really feel like I was holding myself as this little girl. But I pictured me sitting, going as an adult in this visualization and sitting down next to me in the hallway and having a conversation, an image of me talking to this little girl who's me and asking, what are you so scared of? You know, why are you sitting in this corner? It, it was like a mystery to me. And slowly I just began to get information about what, what I was so afraid of. In the rest of the hallway, there was these, um, um, you know, like the banisters from stairway. It went down yes. the hall yes. and behind those banisters, I pictured a huge ape and that ape wanted to pull me in and harm me. And I was terrified of that ape. And I knew I had to get past that ape in order to get to my parents' bedroom. As a child, I dissociated. The ape was what I was scared of, not my father. So as okay. a child... Okay. I developed a fear of a monster, so to speak. And I was afraid of this monster that was going to get me, not my father. Interesting. It's, it's very, it, kids can do that really well anyway. But when you're an abuse survivor as a child, you look for ways to be able to live in your home and survive. And the only way I was able to survive at that time was I'm not scared of daddy in there. I'm scared of this ape that's going to prevent me from getting into their bedroom. This it's is complex. absolutely, it is just so uh, almost terrifying to think about this child mm -hmm. and what, is being experienced. Yep. That is horrible. It is very horrific. And you share this in your book, My House of Lies. It is available now. Mm -hmm. Tell us where the audience can find this, Lori, because you have so much to give, not only in your book, yeah. but one on one, you're available. But I definitely want the audience to get a copy of this so that they can start healing in their own journey based on what you have to reveal. Yeah, I, it's on Amazon. It's, um, it's on Amazon, My House of Lies under Lori Golden. And it's on my website. There we go. Yeah, it's on my website as well, lori golden author .com. 
there we go. I want to thank you so much for the information that there's so much more we can talk about and I definitely want to have you back, but I I want to thank you for the information that we've been able to cover so far today and really share with the audience because I think it's important and we do not talk about these things enough. There are things that have gone on in history time from the beginning of time that has stayed within the family that is behind closed doors. Nobody wants to talk about whether it's incest, domestic violence, certain codependency issues, other types of things that, that are there. Everything seems to be behind closed doors and the resolution doesn't happen and people don't recover We just pass it down to the next generation and those people end up on a journey of pain. Yes. And so if we can really help to stop that right now and and breathe recovery and healing and enrich somebody's life right now and stop certain generational things from happening, I think this right now is important. And I want to thank you for sharing and talking about this with your life dedication based on your own issues, but since then and helping others. And thank you. You're welcome. And I want to thank all of you for tuning into Rebecca Sounds Reveille. This has been a really tough talk today. A lot of us don't want to hear some of the things that we've shared, but if you've taken any bit of information a little bit that might help your own personal life or some of the information that might be applicable to somebody you know, please get in contact with us, whether it's me or Lori. We'll get your information to you, whether it's auditory or visual, however it is that you learn that we can help in your healing process, let us do that for you because everything that we do is confidential. There is no, nothing, no person that we're going to share it with. We want to help you and that's what we do. And I offer peer support. She's a licensed clinical social worker. She's got the information and you've got to go to lauriegoldenauthor.com. Connect with her on social media as well. Get a copy of her book on Amazon, My House of Lies. Thanks for listening. I ask you to share this episode with all of your friends, your family, your loved ones, colleagues, people you know, and those you don't. Thanks for tuning in.